to our podcast from the Ark Insider. I'm Karen Allen, and I'm speaking to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. Tara O'Connor, my co-presenter and the managing director of Ark, the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm Africa Risk Consulting, joins us from France. The Ark Insider aims to offer some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation to stimulate ideas among those who live, work and breathe African affairs. We'll touch on some of the events that have been in the news, as well as ongoing topics of interest. Tara, good to speak to you. Boy, I've missed you. I'm very good to speak to you too. It feels like an age, uh, an age since we spoke. Absolutely. We've had a little break for a few weeks to, to regroup and to take stock, haven't we? But we've got some great guests lined up in the weeks ahead. A little later in this podcast, we'll be hearing from our guest, Todd Moss, a former US Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Africa, about what a Biden-Harris administration next year, pending legal challenges, would actually mean for Africa. And yes, Cara, that I'm looking forward to chatting to Todd, who will bring some interesting insights, I hope. And... You find me here in France in lockdown, second lockdown, in a very strict lockdown. But obviously, you know, we are in almost post-COVID, let's hope, because of the news about the vaccine, yeah. which is obviously the best news um, since we actually spoke last. At least there is an end in sight to this um, this terrible virus. Yeah, but questions really about how long it'll take to get a vaccine out and who gets it. I mean, terrible echoes in a way for me of the, the, the access to antiretrovirals drug debate that we had here in this part of the world, what, in, in sort of early 2000s. But hopefully lots of lessons learned. It's been such a debate since the beginning of this of this crisis that I'm fairly confident that... Um, that the world will be shamed into behaving properly. Yeah, yeah. shame really is the right word, isn't it? Moving on to, to things in the news. Um, here in South Africa, as I speak, the National Prosecuting Authority is continuing with its drive to try and pursue high-level corruption cases. And I know we've talked about corruption a lot, Tara, in the past few months uh, in this part of the world. You know better than I do that the law is highly politicised here. And when political heavyweights get fingered, it's even more so. It's got big ramifications. Well, as I speak to you, Ace Magashule, who's the governing ANC Secretary General, uh, he's the latest head to roll. As I speak to you today, he's under pressure to step aside. I don't think it's going to happen until his name is cleared or otherwise. Watch this space. But it's all over the news in South Africa. And by the time this podcast goes out, we'll have some indication as to whether or not he made his first court appearance. But I think we need to move swiftly on. Shall we take a look at some of the other stories that have been in the news since the last podcast. CNN projects Joseph R. Biden Jr. is elected the 46th president of the United States. The president-elect of the United States, Joe Biden, has run for president three times. And the third time has turned out to be the charm, not only the charm, but possibly the most consequential election of our lifetimes. NBC News now projects that Joe Biden has won the Keystone State, Pennsylvania, and its 20 electoral votes. And through all these experiences, he became a man of uncommon empathy, a man of great the UN, resilience. The African Union and the West African bloc ECOWAS have urged the opposition in Ivory Coast to respect constitutional order after they rejected President Alassane Ouattara's election and vowed to set up a transitional Now, uh, the UN's Rights Commission has called for a full inquiry into possible war crimes in Ethiopia after reports emerged of a massacre of civilians in the Tigray region. Eyewitnesses blamed Tigrayan forces loyal to the northern region's TPLF party 
but they've denied this. They accuse the government soldiers of killing civilians in air raids. Tara, we've had a number of elections since our last podcast, and I'm not even talking about the one over in the US. There's been Tanzania, Cote d'Ivoire and Guinea. All have gone to the polls with uh, President Alpha Conde in Guinea having just had his victory secured by the Constitutional Court. Well, what do all these elections have in common? Well, all the incumbents have emerged victorious. Yes, and I mean, when we think about it, if Donald Trump could have done what Conde and Alassane Ouattara have done, I'm sure he would have he would have done the same. Both of these uh, West African presidents drove through changes to their respective countries' constitutions so that they could stay in power. And, you know, in Côte d'Ivoire, the opposition boycott actually helped Ouattara, Alassane Ouattara, win the presidency significantly, but it also puts his win in that bracket of leaders who win elections with 94.27% of the votes. Uh, a very result that itself raises questions about its democratic credibility. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, the violence that, that, that went around some of those elections. Yes, there was significant violence, but nothing on the scale of the last presidential elections where I think something like 3,000 people were uh, lost their lives. So and in relative stability terms, um, it's not a great result for Côte d'Ivoire as long-term but at least uh, fewer people lost their lives than previous than in previous elections. And there is a sense of business continuity with Ouattara. Well, you've talked about violence, obviously very big concerns about developments in Ethiopia, Tara. I know it's a very important investment destination for some of your clients. But just as all eyes were on the US elections, we've seen an outbreak of hostilities between the Ethiopian military and the Tigrayans in the north. Now, there's been a long history of ethnic rivalry, hasn't there, in Ethiopia? But the uh, Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, which toppled the Derg military government in 1991 and subsequently really dominated the ruling political alliance, that, that's basically been the main player in town, hasn't it? Until, of course, the current Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, took power in 2018. He's from a different community. He's from the Oromo community. And it seems that his bid to try and tackle corruption is one of the reasons why uh, there's been this upflare of violence between um, the Tigrayans and his administration, or at least the, the military. Uh, they say that they're being unfairly targeted as part of this anti-corruption drive. I mean, it is a dangerous development, it has to be said, um, but it isn't surprising. You know, the Tigrayans, as you rightly said, have dominated the political alliance, the political alliance, but also state institutions and the state-controlled business bodies. You know, before Abiy became prime minister, they actually suppressed all dissent and outlawed rival ethnic nationalist groups and, and so on. Abiy Ahmed has embarked on a political and economic liberalisation, which is effectively lifting the lid on what was a, 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 a tumultuous boiling pot, if you like, and targeted the control, the oppressive control of the Tigrayans. But it's worthwhile remembering also that the Tigrayans are highly militarised, very experienced at warfare, and so it is a very risky move. But then again, he has been successful in deploying the federal army 
again to remove from power very oppressive states governors in say the eastern uh, border border states with Somalia so uh, fingers crossed that it doesn't get out of out of control you're listening to the Ark Insider the Africa focused podcast with me Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor Our guest on today's podcast is a former U.S. diplomat, Assistant Undersecretary of State for Africa in the Bush administration. He also led the Center for Global Development in Washington, D.C., and has extensive academic experience. He's the Executive Director of the Energy for Growth Hub and is also an accomplished writer, pivoting between writing books about African development and also thrillers. May I present to you... Todd Moss. Todd, welcome. Great to be with you. That's quite a bio you have there, and it feels like we'd need to have several (laughs) podcasts, I think, to get through it all. But Tara and I are particularly keen to talk to you about energy and, of course, what the new Biden-Harris administration uh, pending legal challenges would mean for Africa. So you've got, first of all, you've got me here in South Africa in the capital of Pretoria talking to you. Tara is currently in France, and you're speaking to us from Washington. That's right. Welcome. <laughs> Great to be with you. It's a little crazy in Washington right now, but always happy to talk Africa policy. Yes, and uh, very welcome to this sort of international podcast, uh, Africa viewed from an international seat, as it were. As it should be, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Quite right, too. I think we're all on the same page. Well, first of all, Todd, there's been obviously just one story that's really dominated the news, and that, of course, is the, the US election. Um, whilst under the Trump administration, Africa as a continent was really quite a low priority, has been really quite a low priority, I should say. What can we expect um, to see shifting with a new administration? I mean, we're not looking for a deep dive into the politics, but just in terms of nuance, can we expect to see, for example, a revival of multilateralism, perhaps a bit more US support for international agencies like the UN? Without question, we're, go- we're going to see the U.S. start to re-engage with the normal international system um, that impacts Africa. That includes, you know, returning to the WHO, engaging with the WTO. Obviously, we'll want to see who are the individuals that will be in those positions. But, the you know, all of the likely candidates in influential Africa positions are going to be, you know, longtime professionals who are internationalists, who understand that the world is changing and that the United States needs to, um, if, if we're going to continue to be influential around the world and not, not continue to deteriorate that influence that, that we need to work uh, in a much different way. I mean, we've seen such a withdrawal from, uh, from African politics and such a disparaging uh, attitude to African politics, including a very rude uh, Donald Trump against, uh, you know, calling Africa obscene names. Um, but so... The re-engagement will be around what sort of core issues do you think? Look, I think one thing that's not going to change is that despite the kind of um, rhetoric we saw out of the White House, there is still a bipartisan consensus among the national security elites around what uh, U.S. national interests are in the continent. Those have not really changed, right? There's humanitarian interests, particularly around food security and health. There will be national standing national security interests, and uh, there's obviously an interest in in growing the economic ties. The the last piece that has been, you know, steadfast for the U.S. approach to the continent 
for at least three decades that is going to be the toughest to recover is the pillar around promoting human rights and democracy. That's still, you know, a fundamental part of American foreign policy and will be in the continent. There's going to have to be a, quite a bit of repair and rebuilding to make that even remotely credible. But I do think that if, if the new administration comes back with a bit more humility uh, and those relationships are built more around mutual respect rather than a one-way transactional relationship. Uh, that that can be that, that that can be recovered relatively quickly. Todd, it's interesting you you say that. I mean, when you talk about things like governance, you think back to the Obama administration, and it made it clear that the U.S. would support many states in Africa in terms of trade and aid deals, but governance was not something that was negotiable. And really, when you talk to people here, that that did seem to get kicked into the long grass, as you say. And there were a lot of Trump supporters among the African leadership. I must add, uh, when you talk to people informally. But can we expect to, to see a much more sort of trenchant position being, um, being, being postured by the United States, by the new administration? Well, I mean, I'm not surprised that, that he's popular among some leaders because autocrats like other autocrats. Uh, so, you know, the kind of club of dictators is not, uh, you know, is, is nothing new. Um, but look, I think fundamentally... The United States um, still sees um, growing demands for democracy in Africa as a trend they want to support. They still want to see human rights, uh, you know, human rights improving, uh, and they still want to see overall governance and economic management get better. And I think that we're what we're going to see, what I would absolutely expect from a Biden administration is a much tougher line, particularly in Southern Africa, where we've seen so much backsliding on democracy. Um, and, you know, I mean, Tanzania is probably the worst case, but it's been pretty bad across across the Southern African region. I think West Africa has been quite a bit better. East Africa hmm, sort of in, in the middle. But I would expect to see a, a shift in tone and posture from, from the new administration on that. I know Tanzania has obviously been a concern to, to, to everyone, um, but any other countries that jump to mind, that spring to mind as priority countries for the US? So, I mean, in Southern Africa, the, the relationship with South Africa is obviously the most important and it's, it's also the most strained. Um, it's been strained for a very long time, and those structural reasons for that strain are not going to change with a with a new administration in the U.S. So that I would expect to, you know, there would be a period where they will try to reset, but I don't think fundamentally the reasons that the U.S. and South Africa have drifted apart so strongly have um, have have changed much. Uh, Mozambique in part because of the LNG investments by large US companies and because of the concerns around um, the insurgency activity, I think we're going to see a lot more US attention on Mozambique. Um, and again, that has nothing to do or very little to do with the new administration, but just changing events on the ground. I mean, Tara knows that I'm a longtime uh, Zimbabwe watcher and I would say that the U.S. relationship with Zimbabwe will not change at all. In fact, uh, the Biden uh, Africa campaign folks are all longtime Zimbabwe hawks. So I would not expect 
that we're going to see a softening against the Monongagua regime at all. And all of that money that ZANU-PF wasted on Trump-aligned uh, lobbyists, which got them essentially zero, um, is going to be uh, money down the drain. So that really means that, uh, you know, the, the one very interesting thing about that, the US position on Zimbabwe is that the IMF is prevented from granting debt relief to Zimbabwe. Um, uh, you know, the US is forbid the US vote has to vote against any debt relief for Zimbabwe unless significant reforms are made. Isn't that so? Yes. So under Zadera, under the Zadera mm-hmm. law, which was which goes back to 2001 um, and then was updated in 2018, just before the, the election in Zimbabwe, the, the U.S. is supposed to vote against um, against arrears clearance and re-engagement until certain conditions are met. But given where Zimbabwe is so far off track on reforms, we're not even close to coming to that. Todd, in the Southern Africa region, I mean, do you feel that uh, in, in the past four or five years, the U.S. has really lost ground and lost ground to, say, China. And, you know, when we have these conversations about what the new administration will look like and, and how it will interact with with this part of the world, is there a sense that it's possibly not even relevant? I mean, the reason why I ask that, I mean, I've had some uh, U.S. diplomats talking to me about 5G, uh, 5G technology and rollout of 5G technology in, in Southern Africa and concerns about this. And frankly, there is a sense that in many ways the U.S. has missed the boat because China's filled that void. If you were talking to a Southern African audience now, what would you be saying to them about sort of the relevance of the United States still in this part of the world? I don't think your your analysis is is wrong. Uh, the, U, the U.S. has been very uh, ham-handed in its attempts to try to uh, strong-arm governments. You know, this uh, us versus them approach is never going to work. Um, I don't know why they thought it would. But I do think if I was speaking to a Southern African leader, I would say that you should be leveraging in every way possible playing China and the United States off each other. Um, Writing off the United States, I don't think makes sense because we are still the largest economy. We are still the largest um, military power. And we're going to be influential um, in the region despite all of the deterioration. And hopefully we'll see a rise in influence um, in the next administration. For the U.S., I think this view of uh, strategic uh, competition with China is actually the wrong lens. We should be dealing with Africa on its own terms and not through a lens of trying to counter China. Because to be to be realistic, we are not going to put the resources on the table that China is putting on the table. And we bring a very different set of activities, of values, and of benefits that the continent should be trying to reap both. Africa needs a lot of infrastructure. And China, they would be crazy not to work with China to help build that infrastructure. At the same time, the United States has a lot of technology, a lot of um, cultural and other um, as- uh, other aspects for trade and investment that the continent would be crazy to try to keep out. Um, so and from the U.S. side, I think that we should be viewing, looking for areas where U.S. and Chinese interests align. And I think actually our interests align in a lot more ways um, where, than where they diverge. 
that's such an interesting view and such a and such a different view to the one that we've been that we've been hearing recently you know as everything being a, a, a returning to a bipolar world so that gives me quite a lot of comfort um Todd. <laughs> well i'm not confident that the u.s <laughs> government is gonna is gonna is gonna change that approach but i do think if you if you know, there, there's a very, there's a small but very hardy U.S. Africa policy community in Washington of current and former officials. They're a pretty uh, sober bunch, you know, and I think that they're all, um, I've, they're all bemused that the U.S. has not um, adapted to changing conditions globally and changing conditions in Africa, right? So Africa is more confident and influential than it was 10 or 20 years ago, you know, it's richer and more urban than it was. Um, and, and African nations have a lot more international options. People often accuse the United States government of having, or in the past few four years, of having very much um, a security-focused relationship, if one at all, with, with the African continent. We've seen things like um, uh, task forces being set up, joint terrorism task force being set up between Kenya and the United States with sort of FBI agents um, operating and doing training and capacity building here. Um, there's obviously questions about the future of Africa, um, which is operating out of Germany with uh, obviously bases in, in places like Djibouti as well. How much do you think that security um, prism will remain, given that you know, that given that the United States has based sort of the terrorist attacks in places like Mali, for instance? So the you know the rising role of the U.S. military in the continent, you know, goes goes back all the way to you know to to two thousand and one. Actually, even before that, I'd say starting with the nineteen ninety eight bombings of our embassies in, in, yeah. in Kenya and Tanzania. <laughs> That really sort of shook the national security uh, machinery into seeing Africa as a front in the uh, war against extremism. We had the global war on terror under the Bush administration, and they didn't call it that under the Obama administration, but what, it was essentially the same thing. And in many ways, you know, maybe looking at uh, drone strikes in Somalia, it actually intensified under Obama. The, the Trump administration has kind of said that they're pulling out, but then actually behaved even more aggressively in some ways. So I think it will be determined, the, the, the military role will be determined by events on the ground and what the intelligence says. Uh, is happening to the threats. Looking at the continent, obviously, next to South Africa, um, Nigeria is obviously the biggest economy on the continent and probably the most important. But in the during the Trump era, it has also been the the country to um, go furthest in reverse and is a very problematic country, obviously, given the recent events. I wonder what your views are on on what's happening in Nigeria. Yeah, so I think West Africa is a really, you know, fascinating and rising region of importance, you know, um, uh, Ghana, Senegal, uh, in particular, are very, you know, close U.S. allies, and I think will rise up the the ladder of importance under a Biden administration. But it, 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 Nigeria is the anchor. The relationship has has kind of to, you know, has kind of wavered between um, between cooperation and and sort of arm's length. And again, I think that the U.S. is going to try a new approach to try more uh, constructive relationship with the Nigerians um, to help 
improve the, you know, the multiple challenges that that country is facing. You know, I think U.S. policymakers clearly recognize that a dysfunctional Nigeria is a problem for the entire region. The real rise of the Niger- Nigerian diaspora in the U.S. Um, as I think playing a really positive uh, influence. So there's a, a large number of Nigerian Americans and Nigerian immigrants that are uh, in the upper echelons of policy, business, and especially culture that's really starting to shape that relationship in, um, in a way that it's much more like India um, than say, um, you know, traditional, um, a traditional bilo- bilateral relationship has been with Africa. So I think that that's positive. So I, I do expect a lot more attention on, on rebuilding that Nigerian relationship. Todd, brief us a little bit on what your current venture is and the energy hub and how that fits into, uh, into the next few years in Africa. Yeah, so if you look at all of the issues you know, that, that Africa is facing, particularly young population, with a real employment crisis. So every year, at least 12 million young Africans enter the job market and very few of them are finding employment. Um, And when we look at the data, what is holding back companies from higher productivity and hiring more people? um, There's a couple of things that come up, but at the top of the list in every country, is the cost and reliability of electricity. You know, you just cannot run a competitive business if you have to rely on diesel generators or, you know, the power is going out and you have to shut down operations. And this cuts across manufacturing, IT, services, uh, literally everything of a modern economy needs cheap, reliable uh, energy. Um, And so the Energy for Growth Hub is a global research network that I spun out of the Center for Global Development just about two years ago, um, which is focused on using data and evidence to help policymakers make smart decisions to help build that high, low-cost energy future for all countries. And we've got a big focus on Africa. And I'd say that, you know, one of the um, positive things we've seen is that the international community is very focused on energy. We're seeing a lot of money pour into, uh, into generation, um, into off-grid and renewable power, all of which is exciting. And, and frankly, Africa needs all of it. But you cannot run a modern economy on uh, off-grid solar. Uh, you know, Africa is going to need steel mills and cement plants and data centers. And right now, that still requires... Uh, energy at scale. And that's going to mean, you know, wind and solar farms with a modern flexible grid. It's going to mean, you know, in a place like Kenya, the geothermal potential, they're already exploiting it, but there's a lot more to go, a lot more large hydro. And, you know, in places like Mozambique and Nigeria and Senegal and Ghana, they're going to be also using uh, natural gas. That's, that's what the Energy for Growth Hub is all about. Todd, I'm a journalist by background. And so, you know, top lines always get me going. And as soon as I heard that you'd written thrillers and, you know, I, I had all these images being conjured up in my mind of British politicians who'd then gone off to write, uh, write thrillers. Obviously, you're in a completely different category. Just tell us, how do you find the time and what are you writing about? <laughs> so so the, my, my fiction uh, career came about as kind of an accident. So, so after my time in government, I, I, I left and I, I wanted, I started to write a book, an outline for a book about, about dysfunction in U.S. foreign policy, how we're 
are often our own worst enemy, especially during a crisis. Um, and I outlined the book and it seemed that it would be a really depressing read. So I thought it would be more fun. <laughs> and and in, in, a, in an ironic way, I could actually be more truthful about what it's like inside the US government if I put it in a fictional format. And one of the, one of the seminal uh, moments was in 2008, the coup in Mauritania. Um, and I was sent in to be the envoy to try to convince uh, General Aziz to step down. And, and it was a really fascinating learning experience for me, um, as General Aziz, as you rightly know, did not step down. Um, but it was a great, it, it was a, I used that as a vehicle for writing a story about a coup and a, a young diplomat who's, who's tasked to try to reverse it. And the system both in in the country and back home in, in the US government is kind of uh, rigged against him to succeed. And I decided nobody had ever heard of, no, no American had ever heard of Okcha uh, Mauritania. So I said it in Mali and I wrote it, it sort of 2010, 2011 uh, into 2012. And then of course we know that Mali had a real coup just as I was finishing the book. <laughs> so that was uh, you know awful news for Atete and the Malian people but good news for my fiction career. Um, and Your publisher must have loved that, yes. Yeah, my, so my agent was able to sell uh, the book on the back of that. And, um, and so I wound up writing four thrillers for, uh, for Penguin's Putnam Books. The first one obviously set in during a coup in Mali. The second one in Where My Heart Is in, in Harare during a, 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 an election that goes awry, which was also based in large part on the 2008 election when Mugabe lost the first round and refused to concede. And then I did one on Cuba. Uh, and then the last one was on uh, organized crime in, in Nigeria and Russia. That last one's called The Shadow List. And, uh, you know, it's been fun. It's been a good outlet for me. And it's a way to try to bring regular uh, thriller writers into the bowels of like a U.S. embassy or into the, into the conference room of the State Department to hear how people argue about what the U.S. should do and what the options are but also to kind of normalize places like Zimbabwe or Mali or Nigeria in the minds of, of, of American readers that don't, that don't often read about those places. I'm ashamed to say I haven't read any yet and I now will commit to, they've actually, I shall commit to reading them now, uh, Todd. Your sales will be going up after this podcast as well. We have a, we have a very, very wide and, and well-read audience. So yeah, it's really good to speak to you. Thank you. Great, great to speak to you. And thanks for, thanks for having me on. Very good to have you on the podcast, Todd. And hopefully we will uh, get you on again in the not too distant future. Look forward to it. You've been listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Thank you for joining us. If you're interested, Tara's team at ARC produces ARC Briefing, country reports on the region that take a deep dive into the issues every single month. You can get more information about a subscription to these at info at Consulting. that's all one word, dot com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now. <laughs>